Well, at this time, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to take it and turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians in chapter number three. Uh, we have been going through the book of Philippians uh, with a series entitled Rejoice in the Lord. That's the overarching theme of this book. Um, we'll not kind of, it's not really the overarching theme of this particular message, though, um, but, uh, but that is the theme of the whole book, uh, is rejoicing in the Lord. And uh, remember where Paul was when he wrote the book. Uh, he was not enjoying an Arnold Palmer from Chick-fil-A on a resort somewhere. He was in a Roman prison under house arrest. And uh, so if he could rejoice in the Lord in those circumstances, certainly we can in ours. And uh, that's the focus of the, the whole series. But um, this particular message is a little bit different. And so if you're there, if you're able to stand with me, if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, and uh, then we'll be seated here in just a moment. Uh, but Philippians chapter number 3, we'll pick it up in verse number 3 and read down through verse number 9. Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 3 through 9. The Bible says this, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And uh, let's have prayer one more time together. Lord, we're thankful for um, what you've already done in our hearts through the music and through the time together. Um, but Lord, I pray now as we come to the message, we come to your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us now to focus on what you'd have for us. Help us to focus on your word. Help us to focus on your will for our lives. And then, Lord, I pray that we would not just be good hearers today, but that we would be good doers of what we hear. Lord, if there's one here today that has not yet put their full confidence in Christ alone for their salvation, I pray that today would be the greatest day of their life. Uh, may today be the day they place their faith in you and be saved. And, uh, Lord, I pray for those of us who have, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith and our confidence in you for the other things that we go through in our lives. Well, thank you for all you do in our hearts and lives now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Speaking of Arnold Palmer, golf immortal Arnold Palmer recalls a lesson about overconfidence. He said it was the final hole of the 1961 Masters Tournament. He said, I had a one-stroke lead and had just hit a a very satisfying tee shot. I really don't know what that's like because all mine go off to the right, um, if I even make contact. 
Uh, but anyway, he said, I felt I was in pretty good shape, Palmer said. As I approached my ball, I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. He motioned me over, stuck out his hand, and said, congratulations. He said, I took his hand and shook it. But as soon as I did, I knew I had lost my focus. On my next two shots, Arnold said, I hit the ball into a sand trap and then put it over the edge of the green. I missed a putt, and it ended up losing the Masters. You see, overconfidence can be an extremely dangerous thing, especially if your confidence is in yourself. But when your confidence is in Christ alone, my friend, you are in the safest place imaginable. Because he has never failed one time, and he never ever will fail in the future. We saw last Sunday that Paul issued a a very stern warning to the believers there at Philippi in verse number 2. The title of the message last Sunday was, Beware of the Dogs. And uh, in chapter uh, 3 and verse 2, he he warned the Philippians about these false teachers who were teaching believers that uh, they needed to put confidence in a ritual in addition to Jesus Christ. Well, in verse number 3, Paul reminds the church family that they were indeed true believers of Jesus Christ. And now in the passage we just read, Paul shares from his very own personal testimony why these false teachers are completely dead wrong and that nothing in the law can save or even keep a person saved. So let's dive into this passage this morning and see three aspects of Paul that help us understand that our confidence should be in Christ alone. First of all, I want you to see in this passage Paul's resume. Paul's resume. Uh, Paul gave his resume here in verses 5 and 6. And uh, he gave his resume to the church at Philippi to remind them just who he was and if, and if there was anyone who could have confidence in, his, in the flesh, it was Paul himself. I mean, Paul was quite the individual. He had quite the background. And he basically was sharing this to basically say this. Look, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, it's me. But I'm telling you, the flesh does not save. Uh, My background does not save. Only Jesus can save. Okay, what what was on Paul's resume? You know, when you are looking to maybe try to get a, another job and you, have your, you fill out your resume or you're in high school and they take you through the class on how to fill out and uh, prepare your resume, you're trying to figure out what to put on there. Well, here's what Paul mentioned to the church family there at Philippi. First of all, he talked about his pedigree. In verse number five, he talked about his pedigree, um, basically how he was brought up. First of all, he mentions in verse number five, circumcised the eighth day. So Paul mentions this first, since this was one of the main issues these these Judaizers or dogs or evil workers or the concision, however you want to say it in verse number two, um, were were teaching. Um, they They were saying in order to become a Christian, in order to be accepted by God, you need to place your faith in Christ, plus you need to get circumcised. Well, Paul says, look, I was circumcised the eighth day. 
And see, the mention of this being done on the eighth day would show that he was not a Gentile converted to Judaism, but a true Israelite under the law, which required being circumcised on the eighth day after birth. And in this, he was showing that salvation does not come by a religious rite or a religious act. Look, no one is saved because they do some religious ritual like baptism or take communion or pray three times a day or going into a confession booth. Salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works lest any man should boast. So when Paul mentions that he was circumcised the eighth day, he wasn't trying to brag. He was basically trying to say, look, I was circumcised the eighth day. And what you're bragging about in your circumcision, I was on the eighth day. And yet, that's not why I'm part of God's family. And that's not how I earned my way into God's family. Um, That didn't mean anything. So first he mentions his circumcision, and then he says he was of the stock of Israel. And in this he reminds them he was an Israelite by nationality and race. Paul was by birth one of the chosen of Israel. In this, he was showing that salvation does not come by nationality or race. John 1 and verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look, no no one is saved because they're an American. God's not going to say, well, let's see, you get, you get to the gate of heaven and God's going to say, okay, uh, can you show me your identification, please? And you pull out your driver's license. Oklahoma. Ooh, Oklahoma, even better. Come on in. <laughs> That's not the way it works. God doesn't look at one person because they're a certain uh, nationality better than someone who's not. Look, it doesn't matter who your parents are. You must make a personal choice to believe on Jesus Christ individually. Uh, My four children were all born into a minister's home. I was uh, an assistant pastor for many years in California. I was a youth pastor which uh, explains a lot of my baldness. But my children were raised in a, and born and raised in a minister's home. Boy, God's going to really show a lot of favor to them and let them into heaven because look who their parents are. Absolutely not. God requires that each and every one of those four children make a personal decision individually to place their faith in Christ. And so Paul was saying in this, look, I am of the stock of Israel, but that doesn't mean that God's going to let me in just because I'm an Israelite. He goes on to say, uh, if you're following along in verse number five, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. Look, he knew, you know, he did the uh, ancestry.com, right? He did the DNA thing. You know, he sent a sample of his DNA and they came back with the results and he went, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, he knew this through uh, passing it on and all that, but, uh, but he, he was of the tribe of Benjamin and, and who knows what Paul's name was before it was Paul. It was Saul. 
And who was the first king of Israel? Saul. And Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, and, and uh, his parents named him after that. And basically, they were just showing a lot of, um, a lot of respect for their heritage. And, and, uh, and, and in, this, in, in mentioning this to the church at Philippi, he was showing that salvation does not come through rank. He, he said, oh, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Like, I'm not just an Israelite, but I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Do you remember who the first king of Israel was? Saul, right? Well, <laughs> that's my name, actually. And see, he was showing that salvation does not come through rank. Romans 2 and verse 11 says, There is no respect of persons with God. I don't mean to be unkind, but friend, it does not matter what your rank is. God still holds you accountable. He does not overlook your sin because of your title or how many letters you have after your name or how high you have climbed on the corporate ladder. Your rank does not impress God. Oh, it might impress me. It might impress others, but it doesn't impress God. And that's what Paul was showing this church family that, look, you cannot be saved by being some special rank like of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, then he goes on in verse number five and says, this next phrase, an Hebrew of the Hebrews. Look, Paul was a traditionalist in the purest sense. He enjoyed every advantage which could possibly be derived from the fact of being a Hebrew. And in this statement, he was showing that salvation does not come by tradition. Now, traditions are not bad. Perhaps you have some yourself. In fact, I hope you do. Uh, we're coming up on the holidays, and many people have family traditions that, uh, that are traced back many generations. But despite how good and godly these traditions are, they cannot bring salvation into anybody's life. And Paul was saying, look, I'm in Hebrew of the Hebrews. I've got some great traditions. But I'm telling you, that's not at all what can bring salvation. So he first mentions his pedigree in his resume, but then he also talks about his passion uh, in his resume. He said, it's not just the fact of who I am as far as by birth, but, but who I am in action. And so he goes on in verse number five, and he says, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Now, Paul was so zealous of his religion that he became a hyper-conservative known as a Pharisee. He was Mr. Devoted, Mr. Uber Faithful and careful to obey all the laws that they had uh, developed. Now, in contrast to the two commands of Jesus Christ, which is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, uh, and all you are. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the two laws that, that, uh, that Jesus gave. The Pharisees had developed a system of 613 laws. 365 of them were negative commands, I guess one for every day of the year. <laughs> and then 248 positive laws. By the time Christ came, it had produced a heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness. When Paul said, as touching the law of Pharisee, he was showing that salvation cannot come through religion, no matter how devoted someone is. You say, well, look, we're in a church. I mean, I, I thought religion was a good thing. 
that religion does bring you to God. Uh, actually, when you read the Bible, religion, for the most part, is painted in a very negative light. Uh, religion has done more harm than good in history. Because people begin to rely upon their religion versus a relationship with Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3, Paul said this to Titus in verse 5. He says, look, we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So friend, no one is saved through their religion. No one is saved because they are a Catholic or a Methodist or a Lutheran or a Pentecostal or even because they are a Baptist. No amount of religious activity can bring us into favor with God. As Isaiah 64 and verse number 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So salvation cannot come through religion, and, and uh, Paul was very devoted, and yet that's not what brought him salvation. And it won't bring me salvation, and it won't bring you salvation either. Okay, what else shows Paul's passion? Well, let's move down to here, verse number 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul was so zealous and protective of his religion that he was willing to persecute believers in Christ and he sincerely thought in doing so that he was gaining favor with God. He thought, if I destroy these people who are trying to destroy my religion, then God will have great favor upon me. Well, in this, he was showing that salvation does not come through sincerity or through service. Well, many people believe that God will accept all those who believe what they believe, so long as they're really, really sincere. Um, like, who am I to tell you what you're, what you're believing is wrong? Because we live in the age of tolerance, don't we? And uh, what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. No, no, no. Sincerity, although it could be good, does not guarantee salvation. Jesus said in John 14 and verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Sincerity can be good, but it is entirely possible for someone to be sincerely wrong. And Paul is saying here that no amount of sincerity can earn God's favor. So Paul is giving quite the resume here. He's basically showing, look, if anyone can have confidence in the flesh, it's me. And I'm telling you, I still fall woefully short. What else shows God, uh, Paul's passion here? Uh, number, uh, verse number six here, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul was so careful to keep the law. And outwardly he looked good and he was blameless. And, and as people looked at him, they're like, man, he's, he's one perfect guy. And in this, she was showing that salvation cannot come through legalistic living. No matter how careful you are, Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall 
no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So no matter how blameless someone thinks they are, when it comes to their religious system, they are still guilty before God. So that was Paul's resume. If you were a religious person back in that day and you were to read that resume, you would say, Paul, pretty impressive. You're hired. You've got the job, my friend. You've got the greatest resume ever. Can I ask you this question, friend? How is your resume? What does your resume look like? Can I remind us this morning that God doesn't think more of you if you appear to be better than someone else? If you look at your resume and you say, well, it's sure better than his resume. It's better than her resume. So God's going to say, well, as long as you're better than everyone else or most people, then I'll let you in. It's not the way it works. No matter how good or bad your resume is, God is not impressed. Because the reality and the truth is, all of us have the exact same resume, don't we? Paul said in Romans chapter number 3, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Look, your resume looks the same as mine. We're sinners, and we're in desperate need of a Savior. And you can appear to look good on the outside and you can have a great background and maybe your grandpa was a pastor and, and maybe you've done a lot of good things in your life and you've given to charity and, and you're a good person and you help people. But I'm telling you, all of us have the same resume when it comes to God. In God's eyes, our resume is that we are a sinner. That's my resume and that's your resume in God's sight. But I want you to see, secondly, not only Paul's resume, but I want you to see, secondly, this morning, Paul's renouncement. Paul's renouncement in verse number 7. After he gets done with his resume here, and, and he, he hands it to him and says, All right, look, this is my resume. Paul had quite the resume, humanly speaking, but he took that resume. You know what he did? He didn't try to plaster it around for everybody to see. He said, you know what? This is what I need to do with it. I need to just simply tear it up. Because this is not going to bring me salvation. And if I'm relying upon this, I'm not going to head to heaven. You see, he tore it up. He knew that it didn't impress God and that he couldn't have a relationship with him if he hung on to his pedigree and his accomplishments. And so he began to renounce them. Verse number seven, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless did I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. In this renouncement, he, we see first of all his denial of self. 
denial of self. Paul was willing to deny his accomplishments and his religious works and his religious background. And remember, this is what Jesus speaks about. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The things he used to consider most precious in his life, he now considers to be, as verse number 8 says, he counted them but dung. Now that's strong language. He says he literally flushes his religion down the drain. He flushes away all the things he used to trust in. And now he's trusting in the Lord Jesus and him alone for his salvation. As a songwriter wrote, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. What are you clinging on to? If you're clinging on to yourself or anything that you have done, I'm a friend, you're holding on to something that's a sinking ship. The only thing that can save is Jesus and, and what he did on the cross of Calvary and the fact that he rose again the third day. So in his renouncement, we see his denial of self, but, but also look at here his desire for the Savior. Verse number 8. Again, the last part, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. You see his desire for the Savior here. Paul was not merely exchanging one religion for another. He was exchanging his, relation, his religion for a relationship with Jesus Christ, a big difference. H.A. Ironside put it this way in his commentary on this verse. He said, Let it be carefully noted that he did not count them loss merely for Christianity. In other words, he was not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system or one set of doctrines, rules, and regulations making way for a better one. He had come into actual contact with the divine person the one crucified, but now glorified Christ of God. And he wanted a relationship with him. A big difference than just a set of rules and, and religion. Some years ago, a bargeman and a collier were in a boat above the rapids of a waterfall. And they found themselves unable to manage it. Being carried so swiftly down the current that they must both inevitably be borne down and dashed to pieces. Well, one, the collier, was saved by grasping a rope that was thrown to him. The same instant that the rope came into his hand, a log floated by the other man. Well, the thoughtless and confused bargeman, instead of seizing the rope, laid hold on the log. Unfortunately, though, it was a fatal mistake. They were both in imminent peril, but one was drawn to shore because he had a connection with the people on the land, while the other, clinging to the loose floating log, was borne irresistibly along and never heard of afterwards. You see, faith has a saving connection with Christ. Faith is on the shore holding the rope, and as we lay hold of it with the hand of our confidence, he pulls us to shore. 
but our good works, having no connection with Christ, are drifted along down to the gulf of despair. And so today, my friend, I want to encourage you to renounce your resume and to tear up your religious your, your religion and your good works and grab hold of the rope of Christ alone for your salvation. That's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. And so we see here, first, Paul's resume. Secondly, we've seen his renouncement. But thirdly, I want us to see Paul's righteousness. And this is found in verse number 9. And being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul's righteousness, first of all, was positioned in Christ. I like how this verse starts. It says, in being found in him. Oh, I like that phraseology. I like that, that picture that we are in Christ. If you recall at the very beginning of this series, we we examined verse number one of chapter one of Philippians, if you want to flip back over there. It says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That little word in is significant. Because when you place your faith in Christ, you are placed in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Are you in Christ this morning? Uh, R.A. Torrey was telling a story about a time that he was witnessing to a man and, and talking about how his, the need for him to place his faith in Christ. And he said, you know, I... I just, don't, I just don't understand one thing, Mr. Tory. He said, you know, um, there's some good people that I know who have nothing to do with Christianity. There's some really good people out there who are doing some good in this world and who are just good moral people. And there's some Christians that I know that are just, I mean, they're just living for themselves. I mean, they're really just not doing anything. How do you reconcile that? And R.A. Tory said, well... Imagine being in two states. You get pick a state. Um, there's different elevations in each state, isn't there? Except for Oklahoma. There's just one elevation here in Oklahoma, isn't there? Um, we were in uh, Montana for three years. There were quite a different elevation uh, as you were driving through that state. A lot of different elevation shifts. But you take a, a state like maybe Colorado or, or, or Montana. And uh, there might be somebody who's living on the top of the mountain. They're kind of a mountain man, and, and they live up there in the mountain, and, and they're going to represent the, the good moral man. And then you get somebody kind of at sea level who's just the ordinary man. And then somebody maybe working underneath in the mines or something and way underneath the surface of, uh, uh, of the ground. And that represents the, uh, maybe the bad man or the very sinful man. Well, they're in the state of Montana, let's say. And then you come over to a different state, and same thing. Uh, there's people living on the mountaintop, and there's people living just the ordinary uh, sea level life, and then there's people living underneath in the mines. 
and he was trying to illustrate to this man that, look, this moral man over here in a, in a state is, may feel like he's better than the other person, but I'm telling you, he's still in this state. And let this state represent the state of the lost condition. And let this state over here represent the saved state, the state of salvation. And this moral man might look over here and say, you know, I'm way better than that, that Christian over there. I mean, look at all the good I'm doing. And look at the, the waste of life that he is. And Ari Tori said, look, it doesn't really matter where you are in the state. You just need to make sure you're in the right state. Now, if you're in this state, you should be living and growing and you should be uh, going to higher ground in your Christian life. But unfortunately, there are saved people who are backslidden and living for themselves. But this moral man can't compare himself to that man over there and say, well, God's got to let me into heaven. No, no, no. You're in the wrong state, bud. You need to get in the right state. And so if you're here this morning and you're not in the right state, I would encourage you not to compare yourselves among yourselves. The Bible says that's not wise. But to make sure that you are in the correct state, the most important thing is not where you are in your state. The most important thing is which state you are in. I'm thankful that at the moment of your salvation, you were placed in Christ and he was placed in you. It's a mind-boggling Thought, but it is accurate and precious to know that I am in him and he is in me. So we see here that Paul's righteousness, he was positioned in Christ, but Paul's righteousness was also provided by Christ. At the end of this verse, it says in verse number nine, the righteousness, I'm sorry, the righteousness which is of God by faith. The righteousness that Paul is talking about here is not his own. It is Jesus Christ's righteousness that gets applied to his account the moment he places his faith in him. You see, it was the Lord Jesus who lived a perfect and sinless life and completely and perfectly fulfilled the law like no one before or since and was the ultimate definition of righteousness. I like what John Phillips had to say about this thought. He said, he laid down that sinless life in atonement for our sins to cancel the debt we had accumulated by our failure to produce behavior that God could accept. But that was not the end. He rose from the dead. He lives forever in the power of an endless life. And by His Holy Spirit, He regenerates us and comes to live in us. And, once he, gave, and, and he once gave His life for us. He now gives His life to us so that we can stand before God, not in the tattered rags of our own righteousnesses, but in a seamless robe of His righteousness. Praise the Lord for what He did for us. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So we see Paul's righteousness was not his own, but it was Christ's righteousness given to Paul at the moment of his salvation, the moment he placed his faith and confidence in Christ alone. So what righteousness are you trusting in? Yours or Christ's? Only one is sufficient to hold on to, and it's not yours. It's the Lord's. So where is your confidence when it comes to your salvation? 
If it's in your resume, let me remind you that no matter how wonderful you think it is, unfortunately, it comes woefully short. The only way to have a relationship with God is to renounce your resume and place your faith and confidence in Christ alone. To fellow believers here this morning, I'm going to kind of turn the dial a little bit to you. If you can have confidence in Christ alone for your salvation, you can also have confidence in Him alone for everything else in your life also. Because He can handle everything that comes into our lives, big and small. There's nothing too big for God and nothing too small that is beyond His care. Let me leave you with a verse as we close the service this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be confident in Christ alone. Look, you don't have to carry your burdens alone. I believe that there are a lot of Christians who are carrying their burdens, thinking that God can't handle what they're going through, so I better just carry it myself. I would encourage you this morning and throughout your life to take your burden to the Lord and to leave it there. Look, if the world from you withhold of its silver and its gold and you have to get along with meager fare, just remember in his word how he feeds the little bird. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. If your body suffers pain and your health you can't regain and your soul is almost sinking in despair, Jesus knows the pain you feel. He can save and He can heal. Please, Christian, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. When your enemies assail and your heart begins to fail, don't forget that God in heaven answers prayer. He will make a way for you and He will lead you safely through. Please take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. When your youthful days are gone and old age is stealing on and your body bends beneath the weight of care, He will never leave you then. He will go with you to the end. Please take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Leave it there, leave it there. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. If you trust and never doubt, He will surely bring you out. Oh, Christian, please take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. I believe a lot of Christians maybe once in a while will pray and say, Lord, this is going on in my life. Here's my situation. Please take care of it. And then they get up from that prayer and they go and carry that burden with them. They didn't leave it there. If God could take care of the greatest need that we have, God can take care of the other needs as well. Let's start acting like he's kind of a, you know, a, a, a one-show pony. All he does is save us, but that's all he does. No, no. He does everything else. He can handle everything that comes into my life. Again, the small things that maybe seem insignificant to others 
Or we think that maybe God doesn't have time to deal with this little issue in my life. Or maybe the big stuff, oh, God can't heal me on this. God can't take care of this burden. Friend, he took care of the greatest and biggest burden that you and I had. He can handle the other stuff as well. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Let's be people who are confident in Christ alone. When we're overconfident in ourselves, we're headed for destruction. Paul realized that, and so he renounced his resume. He renounced the confidence that he could have had in his flesh. He said, no. And he placed his full confidence in Christ alone. As a result, he received Christ's righteousness. And you can too. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to look at this particular passage. Thank you for Paul's willingness to share this. And Lord, his heart behind it all. And how he was willing to renounce it all so that he would win you. Not just so that he could be a part of another religion, but that he could have a relationship with you. And Lord, it doesn't end with the moment of salvation. Lord, you, you, you ask us to trust you with everything that comes into our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to do so. Help us to be confident in you and in you alone. 